Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Intro to Drama podcast. I'm your professor, Kate Gibbon. This is our first, maybe our only, I don't know, bonus episode. We are going through the section of our book entitled Part 3, Tricks of the Trade. This does not have a direct application to any part of your script analysis assignment, but might be relevant to any or all of it. Um, So you're welcome to come on this journey with me. I'm basically going to be flipping through these pages of the book and having a little chat. So I hope you find this helpful, or at least interesting, or something. Welcome. Let's get started. Alright, so the way this is going to work is I am going to glance at a little section from David Ball and then we are going to sort of chat about it a little bit. Um, Sort of support your reading of our textbook and, you know, hopefully give you some good stuff to think about. Or if you're not a big reader, uh, hopefully this can sort of give you some of the same information that is in that reading. So firstly, we're looking at chapter 13. Again, David Ball sort of has this section that he calls tricks of the trade. It's just like nice little zingers, nice little things that are gonna help you as a theater artist, Um, or as just somebody who likes plays, right? They're both valid, they're both valid. So chapter 13 goes into this idea of background information, which I'm not going to lie to y'all, is not something that I always really get into as a theater artist. I myself subscribe to Roland Barthes' um, Death of the Author idea, which sort of says essentially it's not so much what the author has brought to a text, it's what the reader brings to a text and what the reader gets from a text. Howsomever, David Ball is absolutely right that you should be looking into background information. Um, I'm not sure how familiar you all are with the J.K. Rowling situation that has been, you know, slowly happening for several years, but really came to a head, I think, this past summer. Basically, uh, she has come to a place of really aligning herself with some anti-trans ideologies. And that is an element of background information that we now know about the writer of Harry Potter, right? And... So not so there is one reason that we can't just divorce an author from their work, and that's because an author brings their own biases into the work. And those might be hateful, in the case of J.K. Rowling, um, or those might just be the knowing that as a teacher, I have the bias that I tend to not consider the author so much as I consider the text itself, right? Like biases could also just be something like, I prefer happy endings, right? They don't need to be terrible or wonderful. They can be anywhere in between. It can be nice to know who you're working with. Um, David Ball talks about looking, he talks about like John Steinbeck, right? And like how you might really get a bad read on some characters in Steinbeck if you aren't aware of the rest of his work, right? Ball actually says, if you are an artist who loves excellence and integrity, read everything your author ever wrote, um, which is absolutely admirable and sometimes might not be feasible for the time scale or just the sheer volume of what your author may have written. Maybe you've got a contract that lasts six weeks. You're not going to read every Shakespeare play ever, you know? So, but as much as you can, like sort of diving into like, you know, what year did the author write this work? What was happening for him or her or them? Um where, um, where was the author living? Like what other sort of ideas and themes are they working with 
in their other works. Yeah, absolutely. Checking out the background information of the author and and their various works and their various life story, that can give you some pretty interesting insights. We're gonna move on to chapter 14 because we are. So chapter 14, trusting the playwright. I love this section, I love this idea. When people read plays, when people read stories, there is a grand tradition, and this has come up in our class already, and it has come up in other classes I've taught, um, of why did Shakespeare do this? Why did the author do that? The thing that happens in this part of the narrative is stupid. And like, we might not be wrong, firstly, is something I wanna say. Secondly, I mean, we all like to feel clever. We all like to say like, oh, I could have, I could have imagined a better way of getting around this. Um, I think I dunked on Victor Hugo in another podcast, but I'm going to do it again. Like, it's really easy to read Les Miserables and say, why are we talking about this? It's really easy to watch a lot of Shakespeare and go, why is this happening? Absolutely no offense to any Twelfth Night fans out there, but there are some scenes in Twelfth Night that I'm just like, could we please pick up the pace? Like, you know, there's a tendency to say this is stupid and this shouldn't exist in our play. Like, this, is, this isn't necessary. Um, and what Ball calls us to do in chapter 14 is like, whenever that voice rears its head, just say like, yes, dear, I hear you. I hear you and you're valid and you're not as valid as you think you are. Trust that everything within the play is there for a reason. And really, if you like really can't buy it, it's like we talked about, I think um, I used the metaphor of like putting on a jacket to like put on a framework and that maybe we do or don't believe, but let's just test it out. So just say to yourself like, okay, it's the, the thing with the pirates is just completely buck wild in Hamlet, right? You've got the script, right? Like everything in there is there for a reason. You have to understand what those reasons are. If your position, your job is to cut the script, then you can ask yourself, what am I cutting out? Why was it in there? What, how does that impact the script? Basically, it's just a call to check ourselves when we feel that really tempting and funny voice of going like, this is stupid. Like, no, it's, it's there. Is it stupid? Why? Like, why is it there? I just love that. I love this chapter. <clears throat> Uh, chapter 15 talks about families, and I think this is just a pretty nice, it's a pretty short little guy of a chapter. Basically, it's just calling people to, or calling you as the reader to understand that, like, family dynamics are present in almost any play. So if you're looking at a play like Hamlet that is about this, like, crazy royal family, like, you know, start to just look at, like, who are the brothers, who are the parents, who are the siblings, who are the sisters, who are the mothers, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. And just allow yourself to simplify sometimes so you're not just looking at like the big like the kingdom plot like you're looking at the family plot and then actually like leaning into like the family plot um, can sort of help you and your audiences connect in some ways. It's pretty cool. We're gonna move on to chapter 16 which has one of my favorite zingers in it. Um, where Ball is talking about mood and atmosphere. Um, and this fellow says, spell mood backwards, um, which of course is doom, implying that if as a designer or director, you read for mood, you are doomed. And I 
have explained the joke now, which I think makes it funnier. So I hope you're all laughing. Um, but he's absolutely right. But you want it to be a bit of a surprise when Duncan is killed, or at least like when he is killed. Like you don't want to like have Duncan acting like an idiot walking into a castle, right? So you don't just want to be like, this is the vibe of the play. I love a vibe. Okay. Like I love to work general and then get specific. Um, and I think it's really important to be aware of like the general atmosphere, but you need to be aware of it. You can't pin every single choice you make on the general. Um, you start there, but you have to get specific, which is just so true. Um, uh, chapter 17, it's titled The Unique Factor. Um, we actually, this came up when we were talking about inciting incidents and um, intrusion, right? When we were talking about the inciting incident or the intrusion, we were talking about like, what's the thing that changes this into something different, right? Um, why is this night different from all the other nights? Or you might ask yourself, so what? Um, it's just a call to say like, why are we telling this story now? And he gives a couple of examples in here, like a ghost appears, right? Or in, oh, this is, he gives a specific example from Tartuffe. Oh, well, he's just like, you know, even in place where it's like, well, I don't know, this has been going on for ages. Like, well, why does it happen now? Like, there is always something specific. You got to look for that. Chapter 18. This is wonderful. I love this chapter. It's about changing eras. Um, and he's basically talking about the way you need to consider the way the play would have landed to its original audience. Um, and that you can actually use that to change the era. Either to change the area if you're like um, working with the director, maybe if you're a dramaturg and you're saying like, you know, oh, I think we could set this play that was written in the 1600s. It might be really effective if it was set in the 1810s or what have you. Um, but also it's just a call to like understand what would have hit um, your audience or hit the original play's audience in a different way than it hits a modern audience, right? Um, and that's just, that can be so much general research. I actually, here's some advice you didn't ask for. Like, I just think that if theater people can take like world history one and two, like Euro European history one and two, um, American history one and two, like God willing, the VCU history department has broader reaching um, than just that's like a very Eurocentric way of looking at it. Um, but basically, I think that theater people work with history. <clears throat> theater people like use history, right? And so it's really important to know what history you're talking about and to know like socially, like what things would have been meaningful to characters. Um, the example that David Ball gives is the way that an Elizabethan audience would have perceived people from Denmark um, as sort of rough and rowdy and warlike, which is something that is lost to an audience in 2020, you're like, okay, Denmark, I I think they have healthcare. Like, right, um, shows you how much I know about Denmark. It's not much, guys, it's not much. Um, but basically, you need to ask yourself, like, what do I need to translate? Um, and maybe that's a question that might come especially to designers, right? Like, if I'm costuming a piece and I really want to like drive something home, like, oh, like this character who was like an obvious party boy in 
in the time, but kind of seems stodgy now. Like maybe I want to work on like introducing some of that into the clothes he wears, right? It's just the way that we present and perceive things now is different from the way people did that in 1872, is different from the way people did that in 1587, is different from the way people present and perceive, you know, back in 450 BCE, right? Um, and that changes between cultures as well. Um, so a, or an implication earlier in the book where he's like talking about if you read Macbeth for tone, it's very spooky. So you need to just be aware that what's happening on stage, like you might need to give your audience some help to demonstrate that. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. If it didn't make sense, leave a comment in our um, discussion board or on the podcast or something and be like, Kate, stop. And I'll be like, oh, shoot, okay. Um, but then I won't stop. I'll like try and explain it better. We're going to move on. Chapter 19, which is climax, um, which is a term that I'm sure you've all heard before in English class. And it's, you know, the sort of like ultimate moment of conflict in the play right before the falling action. Um, we're going to talk about this, especially when we talk about Aristotle in a week or two. Um, and it's basically when you imagine an English class, like the plot triangle, we'll talk about it soon, but just when you're making your like reading for events list, it's not just a list, right? You can imagine like, what is the most stressful moment? What do I need to highlight the most in the production? I'm gonna move on to chapter 20, beginning slash endings. Okay, so this one, um, this is fun. We're just basically, we mentioned this when we talked about stasis. Um, stasis, this like stillness of like, everything is sort of an even keel, everything is sort of happening. Um, again, whether that's positive, negative, neutral, like sort of, sort of screwy, um, but stable, um, any of those that can happen at the, or that does happen, excuse me, at the beginning and the end of the play. And so the end of a play can actually be the stasis from which a new play could arise. Right. Um, so if you think about like sequels and prequels, um, I had a student bring up whew, Phantom of the Opera, Love Never Dies, which I have opinions about. Um, Right, so if we take Phantom of the Opera, like there's a stasis at the beginning, like Christine's dancing in the chorus or whatever, and by the end there's a new stasis, which is the Phantom has like fled from the Paris Opera and the Paris Opera is burning down and da 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 da, -da and all of this stuff. Um, and then, so we've got this stasis that's been set at the end of Phantom of the Opera and God bless him, Andrew Lloyd Webber wants another paycheck, right? So he's like, I'm gonna take this old stasis at the end of Phantom of the Opera and I am going to write a new play from this stasis. And I mean, he sort of like pressed fast forward and gone on a little while, little ways, um, but that's what's happening, right? So if you think about a sequel or a prequel, there's always this like at least a moment of stasis in between each one. Again, um, my apologies slash no offense meant if you yourself like Love Never Dies. I have a friend who I respect who really does. So like you're in good company. Um, it's yeah, L let me know. Let me know your Love Never Dies opinions. Um, Chapter 21, rereading. Read the play, read the play again. Read the play one more time. Read the play one more time after that. Um, my high school theater teacher used to say that you don't have any business reading a play less than three times if you're doing it. And she is 100% right. And I think that it, it can go far beyond that. You should be reading plays like 
as often as you can. Um, like this, the play that you're working on, um, when I myself get a new assignment and I'm analyzing the play, I'll read that play at least 10 times over the course of my analysis. And it's just because you learn more the more you read. So read the play, I'm gonna say minimum three times if you're working on a project. And then too, like you get that moment when your director is in rehearsal with you and is like, oh, I, uh, this sort of slipped my mind. And you're like, oh, it's okay, I know, right? I mean, probably that doesn't happen because your director has read the play too, but your director's managed, like, you know, is, you know, she's juggling a lot of balls in the air, right? So, you know, you're like, it's okay. I've read the play 17 times. You're like, you're, or you're, conversely, your director doesn't say like, you know, that moment when you're having the conversation and the scene with so-and-so and you're like, what? No, know the play, be impressive. You're impressive, so be it. Um, Oh yes, and which actually is a really good segue into the final chapter, chapter 22, what's next? Which is just like, I believe, a, a nice call to arms. You've got these tools to read, you know how to analyze, you've got these tricks of the trade, you can go off, you can read yourself a play, you can be a talented theater artist, you can do it. So I'm gonna read you all my annotation because I think it, it might be helpful, which is the play is a tool to be used in its own staging. So basically it's just, if you are working on a piece of theater, if you are putting up a play, you're putting up that play for a reason, use the play itself as a tool. You need to read the play, read it well. We've gone over now all through David Ball's book about how to read a play well. We're going to go through another couple schools of thought about how to read a play well. And between, and by the end of the semester, you're going to know how you read a play well. So do so. You know, from this point on, there's no excuse to show up to a rehearsal or show up to a first meeting with a director not really knowing your stuff because you, you have the tools now. And that's sort of what David Ball is getting at in his final chapter. And with that, I'm gonna wind us on into the outro. Thank you for listening to the Tricks of the Trade bonus episode from Backwards and Forwards. I hope that this has either supported your reading or given you new things to think about or helped in some way. Let me know. Um, and happy reading. I'm really excited to read all of your stuff and hear how David Ball's kind of work has been going for you. All right, y'all. Take care, stay safe, and I'll see you in class on Tuesday.